You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. It's fall TV season, and that means that new shows are debuting by the boatload, and many of them are going to fail. That's just the way it is. But also, your old favorites are coming back. And I find, even when there's a show that I've stopped watching or I don't watch regularly or I tune in every so often, I find something very comforting about the thought of certain shows being out there for me to like stumble upon and be like, oh, okay. And one of those shows is ABC's Modern Family. I don't watch it regularly anymore. I, I watch it you know, every so often when I hear a particularly acclaimed episode or when somebody else is watching it or whatever. And every time I tune in, I'm always like, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it exists, even if I am not watching it all of the time. Because for a show that's entering its ninth season, it's still surprisingly well-crafted. So I, I wanted to talk to one of the members of its cast and uh, just about being on that show and also about the process of like building a career in Hollywood when you don't look like a normal leading man. So I had Eric Stone Street in. He's won two Emmys for his role as Cameron Tucker on the show. Uh, And you may not be surprised to learn that he will reveal to me his long history in clowning. If you've ever watched Modern Family, like even an episode of Modern Family, you probably know about his clown alter ego on that show. And uh, I, I, I was really excited to talk to him about the show and also about his new experiences as a reality show host, which is a thing I know nothing about. So uh, I hope you'll give it a listen. Eric, thank you for dropping by. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful drive over. <laughs> did you uh, did you run into a lot of traffic? 52 minutes oh, from wow. the valley. Dear God. When I started, it said 108. Oh, okay. So This is my process is we usually record this late morning in LA, which is the only way you can get to Santa Monica without taking like three hours. Um, yeah, my- I appreciated that you said that uh, <laughs> after after eleven, or uh, so the traffic has died down, but there's still traffic. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the the Los Angeles experience. Uh, but my 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 experience is usually I leave at like nine, and it keeps growing the amount of time <laughs> it's going to take me. So, it's, but going back is fine. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you are uh, the the ninth season. Yeah, of of Modern Family starting uh, shortly as we're recording this. I think as as it goes up, people will have seen it. Um, and I was I was catching up on some season eight episodes I hadn't seen last night, and I was thinking about, you know, how when that show debuted, it was like this this rocket that like of of you know things people had never seen on TV before, and now, you know, it's eight seasons in, and any TV show that's eight seasons in is is you know you're going to be a little bit more familiar with it mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Tell me about your journey with this show, going from like the hot new thing to now like established veteran. Of People the TV being landscape. tired of us. <laughs> that's what, that's what, that's really what it is. Uh, you know, I guess really to start for me, I, I have to start bef- with the show before I ever even knew, knew what it was. Sure. Uh, and people have heard me talk about my process of getting the show before, but it's, it's worth actors that might be listening and people just that might be listening to hear here again because it's um it's a story of of uh 
of hope, I think, because, you know, I was an actor for 12, 12 years in Los Angeles. And when I moved here, my goal was to just work. You know, I never said, I want to be on a hit TV show. Right. I, I never even really said, I want to be on a TV show. I just said, I want to work as an actor. And, you know, that meant getting co-stars and guest stars and yeah. doing commercials and just what a working actor does. So when I got the opportunity to audition for Modern Family, then it was called My American Family. I read it and thought, oh, well, this is going to be a hit. This is really funny on the page. And, you know, I was at a place in my career where I was getting to read for pilots. Uh, and I had booked a couple pilots, a more, I booked a dramatic pilot for 20th Century Fox called 13 Graves and um, had booked a couple other things, but no, hadn't really had much traction in comedy, to be honest with you. Sure. I had done more procedural stuff. So when I read this and thought like, oh my gosh, this is going <laughs> to be, a, you know, this is going to be a hit. I want to be a part of this. You know, um, it was because my friend, uh, had come over and asked me to help him with his audition sides for a role of Cameron Tucker on My American Family. And that's the first time I ever had seen this pilot was right. helping a pal out with his audition. And I'm sitting there the whole time thinking like, I want to read for this. I want to <laughs> read for this. And I told him when he left, I said, Matt, you know, we're still good buddies. I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I got to get an audition for this. He's like, you absolutely have to get an audition for it. So I got an audition for it. Make this part quick. They passed on me. Mm. They don't, Chris and Steve, the creators of the show, don't remember passing on me. It's just that they, you know, it's not like a, a malicious thing, a mean right. thing. It's like, no, it was just like, uh, not really what we were thinking. Right. And then they thought about my audition a little bit more. And then they called me back in. They were like, you know what? That guy was funny. Let's, let's bring him. Let's see him again. Ask him to shave and, you know, wear more clothing, appropriate cam stuff. And so I went and bought a lavender gingham shirt and a gray cardigan and some navy pants. And I went back in clean shave and did the same exact audition. And they again passed. Mm. Uh, again, they don't remember it that way, but it was the truth. They just said, it's not going any further. Jeff Greenberg, our casting director. And then a few more days passed and they said, you know, we'd like to test him. Right. So then I went in and tested with Jesse Tyler Ferguson. He already had the part. He loves to remind me of that. Then I went to network and then I got the part. So, the point of me telling you that is I was so excited about this show. Like yeah. I want desperately wanted to be a part of it. And you know, you learn, you learn as an actor to never get attached to anything. You know, right. I, my technique always was throw my, I would throw my audition sides away as I'd walk out the door of the casting director, not like maliciously in front of them, but I would just be like, that was my way of like moving on. Like yeah. I did the best I could. These are in the trash. I'll print them out again if I get a call back or whatever. So I had been prepared, you know, that's what 12 years of ups and downs will do is prepare you for, you know, not getting attached to anything. I got attached to this. And then they kept messing with me, like oh. getting close, you know, been passed, close pass. So when the show, I got the show and the show happened, I I couldn't believe it. I, right. I thought I was on a hit TV show. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, I, I you know, you put it as people being tired of the show, which um, I'm sure there are some people who are. Um uh, what's that like? What has your experience been, though? You know, when you work on a network sitcom mm -hmm. for that long of a period of time, like how do you keep it fresh for yourself? Yeah. Well, A, really loving my part and right. loving the show and loving my coworkers, I mean, helps. Mm -hmm. uh, and as attached as I got to it in the beginning, and as much as I loved it from the beginning, the bones of the show uh, is what keeps, keeps, I think, all of us interested. And keeps all of us excited because, and the writers just keep coming up with, you know, funny things. We just did a table read yesterday and I, you know, I, I laughed. I mean, like we're 194, I think it was the 194th episode we read yesterday. Wow. And 
we all laughed. Mm-hmm. And it's not this fake laugh that you sometimes get, you know, when you go to, when I would go to table reads, you know, coming up as an actor and be like, why are people laughing at that? That's not funny. Like genuinely laughs. Um, so that, that helps having really good writers. And we have, we have a room full of showrunners on our show. I mean, I, it's, I think writers will agree that it's one of the craziest collection of writers the show's yeah. ever had. Yeah. Um, so that's huge that, but what keeps me excited is that that's what I, you know, dreamed of. Yeah. It's like what I, once I got into this business, it was like, it's possible. And then it happened and it not only happened, but it happened on a, on a really good show. And it happened on a show that people watched. And not only did it happen on a show that people watched, it happened on a show that critics liked, mm-hmm. which is, as we know, l- crazy lightning in a bottle when <laughs> when the general public and critics yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so what keeps me excited is that, you know, I have that moment every every morning when I drive to work over Beverly Glen, you know, at 6.15 in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning where I'm like, I'm really, really lucky. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm, I did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I did it. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's changed about you in the show over the years? Cause I, the thing that I noticed in the later season episodes is you do fewer talking heads. The scenes in some ways have gotten longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about, I watched the episode five minutes last night, which I think is uh, from season eight, which is airport. Yeah. The yeah. airport. Um, and is, you know, just a series of five minute vignettes mm-hmm. with the various different characters. And this is a, a really nice little episode of television, but like those longer scenes, like, like you and Jesse in the airport, uh, both high out of your minds because you've <laughs> taken some sort of, some sort of sleeping pills. Um, like those sorts of scenes, you don't, you know, earlier in the show, it was a much quicker pace. So I'm like wondering what's changed about the show for you over that time, that time period. Well, we talk about it all the time. I have to disagree with you a little bit. Is mm. I used to, I think they used to let the show breathe a lot more than they do now. Mm. You know, we have Chris and Steve who 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 are similar and different in very dramatic ways. They each write their own different kind of episodes. They each supervise half of the season. Right. And I look back at those, and I'll catch them on on USA or whatever they are. They're on. It's it's so freaky to be you know flipping through and. and <laughs> see a, a, a grid of my direct TV filled with modern family. It's like people watch this all day, can watch this all day long. Um, but I'll watch an episode every once in a while uh, and think like, wow, we really used to let things breathe more, right. especially in that season one. Uh, and then it picked up pace. Um, and, you know, I think the table read draft yesterday was 36 pages, sure. you know, that's way too long for a sitcom, so they're going to cut that down. And we'll still probably shoot 36 pages, uh, but they'll do it in post. And it, it wasn't like that in the beginning. We would shoot 22, 23 pages, right. you know, minute a page. So I think the, the show has ebbed and flowed that way, where mm-hmm. we do, you know, quicker pace scenes, slower pace scenes. We, we, we revisit. We let moments breathe. We had a couple episodes last year where I watched it, and I was like— it was the episode where Shelley Long came back and they were at the wedding. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, that, that was a really nice, breathful moment. Yeah. That harkened back to the olden days of Modern Family. Uh, Cam's always had giant mouthfuls of dialogue, right. though. They give me, I call them my little verbal gymnastics, where it'll be like this long speech that I have to make sound like I just thought of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
which is a challenge and fun at the same time. But, um, you know, that, that episode, for example, is how we keep the show fresh and keep the show exciting because right. they're inspired to do something unique and different like that and try it. You yeah. know, the iPhone episode we did that people, you know, seemed to like because it was all completely shot on an iPhone and watching our cameramen roll around with iPhones was amazing that week, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, uh, you, you've uh, mentioned this, these long stretches of dialogue, and I'm wondering, like, when you sit down with a speech like that, what do you do technically just to make sure that it, that it lives with you so you're able to deliver it like you're just thinking of it? Yeah, well, uh, it used to be I would over-memorize it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, you know, as a working, like, grunt actor, my, and I, my job was to know my lines and kind of just shut up. Yeah. So I just— Memorize the hell out of it. But now, because I'm, you know, on a show and one of the actors, and it took me a while to to figure this out, is that if I look at my week's work on Sunday night, it's over. it kind of can get overwhelming. So then it took me a couple seasons to only focus on the first thing I have to do tomorrow morning. Yeah. Not even the third thing I have to do tomorrow morning, just the first, because you learn that there's going to be moments in your trailer and moments in your chair or whatever it is that you can work on that second scene. So now it really is how little can I memorize it and mm. still know it mm. yeah. uh, so that it it stays fresh in my mind. Uh, and that's one thing that's always worked about our show, uh, just for people watching, is we're all super prepared. Yeah. Uh, Ed shows up with his lines memorized. The kids have always shamed us how good and professional they are with their lines. Sophia sometimes has trouble literally because English is her second language. Right. So we have to be patient with her and like have to explain to her what that euphemism even means. You yeah. know, we've always been, everybody's been prepared. And that was set early on in, in the season, really with the pilot. And that, that really was infectious to the, to the crew as well. Everybody right. shows up ready to go. And, you know, other TV shows here, about our hours on Modern Family. And, you know, I'll be at a party inevitably with some other TV actor. I'll walk up to me. He's like, hey, I uh, I got a question for you. Is it true you guys are only working five, six hours a day over there on Modern Family? It's like, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, God, is it true you guys get out at one on Friday sometimes? It's like, yeah, our weeks typically get shorter as yeah. it goes along because we're, we're front load as much as we can. Just shakes his head because we don't turn around on our, our show. And for what that means is we don't do a lot of Fancy camera angles on right. our show. Mm-hmm. So we learned if we're prepared early, we're all, we can all go home. Like mm. everybody gets to go home and do other things if everybody shows up ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, sort of the, the arrangement of the show, which is that, that Christopher Lloyd show runs half the episodes and Steve Levitin show runs the other half, which has always struck me as an outside observer, as if like, as a potentially fractious way to do a television show, and yet everybody there is just like, yeah, that's that's how we do it. Um, like, tell me about like working within that that world and like why it works for your show, where maybe it wouldn't work for ninety nine percent of the other shows. Yeah, I mean, the the person you would need to be in here to really ask about that are the writers because sure, they're sure. the ones that that d- deal with the potentiality of that caustic kind of what perceived relationship might be. It's not that. Yeah. It's very cut and dry. And it's just the way our mom and dad uh, work. It's mm-hmm. just the way it works. And it doesn't really trickle down to us that much. Sure. You know, um, if there is that. And, I, and, and, and again, it really isn't like that. It's just that Steve has a way he likes 
things to be. Chris has a way he likes things to be. They partnered up and they figured out a way to maintain themselves in a partnership. Right. And we have two writer's rooms. There's mm-hmm. in within the writer's room, there's a, a common area and then there's a glass writer's room over here and a glass writer's room over there. Mm. And they work on scripts and sometimes they'll talk and be like, oh, we got Cam doing this in the next episode. And they'll be like, well, you can't have him do that because we have him doing this in the episode five. Like literally it's that. Like they'll have to like compare and see like what everybody's doing and, yeah. and where the arcs kind of can fit into both episodes. But it's also oddly the show works. Yeah. So you can't then really, it's like I can kind of give it an analogy of like people, I, I play drums and I hate it when people say that Ringo Starr is not a good drummer. Mm. It's like, First of all, he's a really good drummer. But even if he wasn't a really good drummer, he's the drummer for the Beatles. So that kind of negates everything you think about his drumming. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so it's sort of that situation at our show. It's like, well, if you think it might not work, sorry, but it does work. So it doesn't really have to, you don't really have to have a conversation about it. But it also creates a competitive spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a, a rivalry there undoubtedly that's like, well, I want my episodes to be good. Well, I want my episodes to be good. And when you go back to your original question of why is the show still good or why is it still exciting and why do you still want to go, it's because from the head down, you have two showrunners that still want to put out good TV. Right. They don't just rest on their laurels. Right, right. Mentioning you're a drummer is interesting to me because so much of comedy is in rhythm, is in saying the words you know, a certain way, getting the punchline at a certain point, hitting the words at the right, you know, accent and all of that, just to make the joke come across. And I'm wondering, like, what has, has being a drummer taught you anything about delivering comedy? Or what have you learned about delivering comedy over the course of doing this show? Well, you know, I, it's an interesting uh, quest I've always been on to kind of like figure out like when anyone thought I was funny, Mm. like, like, Asking my mom and dad, like, well, did you think I was funny? Like when I was six? Like yeah. when did you when did you think I was funny? Um, when did I learn to be funny? You know, and I've really come back to that it's 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 observing and watching and just listening um to other people. And that gets you into the music stuff. It's like I'm not a great drummer. I love the drums, and what I can tell you is that when I listen to music, I listen to the drums. Right. Like that's what I listen to. And it doesn't always translate into that I can do what I'm hearing because my right foot isn't as good as that guy playing the drums and my right hand or my left hand isn't as good, but I hear it. I know what they're doing. And there's no doubt that I'm a very, I can listen to something and mimic it. I yeah. can hear it and do it or try to do it or at least know what it's being done. And so I'm a big Stevie Wonder fan and, uh, producer then of Larry King Live at CNN, I had gotten to know, and she knew I was a big Stevie Wonder fan, and she said, Stevie Wonder's coming in. Uh-huh. And she's like, would you like to come in and listen to his interview with, with Larry King? I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> and he brought in his little tabletop, you know, electric piano, and he played a couple songs. It was awesome. And I was leaving. She said, Stevie, this is Eric Stone Street. He's on a show called Modern Family. This was like season two, three, maybe. He goes, oh, yeah, I've listened to it. <laughs> and I thought that was the coolest, like, thing and he yeah. goes the words of music man words yeah. of music mm. and i i definitely think chris and steve and writers in general you know just listen they right. they don't watch necessarily even they just listen to how that is and you know i have we all have a particular taste in what words we want to hit and sometimes a director will come in and say hey hit this word and i'm sitting there thinking like 
no, mm. that's not where you want to hit it. But I'll agree to do it, and <laughs> and and I do it anyway, and try to protect myself and what what I want to do because it's a hard balance where because as an actor trying to make it, you're always like beholden to what everybody else says, right? And then without being arrogant, at some point it transitions into me thinking like. Well, I'm on the show. I I am the character. My instincts have to be worth something here too. Sure. And it's finding that balance of saying like, I respectfully disagree. What I usually do is like, okay, I'll do it that way, but it's not my preference. Right. And sometimes people put up a good argument and say, well, this is why I think it is. And I'm open to it, but like, I hear it a certain way and then I want to do it that way. Right, right. You know, that's interesting that you say that because especially on a longer running show, a lot of times you obviously have the same showrunners you've always had, but a lot of times a lot of the writers switch out, you know, other people move on to do other things. So the actors become like the great guardians of this character that they've played all these years. What are things that you think are just always true about Cam that you just like? that you just want to make sure are always there and are always present? And like if if they if you feel they're even coming up close to that line of violating them, you kind of speak up. Well, I've I've spoke up a couple times on things when we've made Cam too like sinister, like mm-hmm. you know maniacal. Mm-hmm. Because I think what's true about Cam is that he's a good person, you right. know, and he stops and smells the roses. I always used to say that I wanted him to be a person that that celebrated every moment with someone, and you know, I personally don't always love the the conniving, backstabbing thing. But I also understand we're making a sitcom over there and we have to create like outrageous situations, you Mm -hmm. know? So, and we are making a comedy and sometimes we're making a farcical comedy. And, and just every time I think something's like over, over the line or overboard, we'll shoot the episode. And then somebody will come up to me and be like, Oh my gosh, I just saw that episode. Let me tell you that exact thing happened to my family. (laughs) And you're like those damn writers. It's like, there is a way they know writers how, to um, create moments that are reflective of other people. That when I read it, I'm like, this would never happen. And then sure enough, somebody's like, this happened. Like, all right. But, you know, uh, Cam is is loving. Cam is, is, is good. Uh, I always loved the idea if we establish that Cam has a big heart and is a good person, that then it gives you permission to make him do kind of, naughty things like I always like it when Cam would when sticks his foot in his mouth mm-hmm. um, whether it be something that's mildly you know racial or bigoted or sexist or whatever because we all can like not we all have been in the situation where we we don't know if we said something that we shouldn't have said right. but if we know that Cam is a good person and his heart is in the right place and is a, is a good person that becomes then relatable it's like mm-hmm. all of our parents it's like well we know our parents aren't bad people but sometimes our parents say things that you're like oh dad you can't say that anymore like yeah. or you shouldn't say that so i always wanted cam to sort of be that person to where he says something and there were episodes early on that that i would constantly be sticking my foot in my mouth. And right. I like when that happens. And um, let's see, good parent. You know, mm-hmm. in the original breakdown of Modern Family, it was Cam was the more paternal and exuberant. I think exuberant was maybe the word or mm-hmm. passionate of the two. Passionate is definitely a, a, a word. 
vindictive. There's a vindictive spirit to him. I love all the rivalries that Cam, they've created for Cam over the sure. years, all of his nemesis, nemesi. Hmm. I love that stuff. Um, but yeah, it is weird when, you know, somebody will come in and say, well, you know, what if Cam did that? And, and I'm not like, uh, you know, because I didn't create him. Like, right. he's not real. Yeah. Steve and Chris did create him. And it's like, so I just get to put on the shoes every day and get my hair done. Um, so I'm not like too precious with it, but there are times that I'm like, eh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a dog person? Like, like, do you love dogs? Do you love your dog specifically? Or just like, are you magnanimous toward dogs in general? I have cats, can't have a dog, but I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. I wish I could have a dog someday. Going to have a dog. And when I think about the people in my life who love their dogs, that's that's when I start thinking about BarkBox. Whether it's your son, your daughter, your friend who wants a monthly surprise for their beloved pup, BarkBox is the perfect gift for your loved one. Whether it's your son or your daughter or your friend or just like somebody you know in your life who's like a big dog fan and they want a monthly surprise for their beloved pup, BarkBox is the perfect gift for your loved one. So listen, this every month BarkBox paw picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences. The edibles are made in the USA or Canada. 100% of their products are tested on their animals, their own animals. BarkBox is a great way to try a variety of treats and toys from local and small businesses that you might not be able to find. And the monthly boxes are themed. You got like Country Fair, Bark Ball, things like that. New and unique toys. Yes, toys continue to keep dogs engaged, interested, and happy. And if your dog doesn't like a treat or a toy in the box, they're going to send you something that dog will love for free because they're all about dog happiness. Free shipping on BarkBox within the continental U.S. And when your dog falls in rove, yes, rove, with something from the box, you can easily find it again on BarkShop.com or on the app or by texting BarkBox. So listeners of this show could get a free month of BarkBox. You visit BarkBox.com slash interesting. And when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan, you get that free extra month. So you could go seven months or you go 13 months. And that extra month is, is from going to our special site, which is BarkBox.com slash interesting. Again, BarkBox.com slash interesting. Take care of your dog. So your dog says, Speaking of him being a good dad, um, Aubrey, who plays your daughter yeah. on the show, uh, I was looking. She joined in season three, uh, and I think she was three or four when four. that happened. And now she's, you know, uh, a tween. Mm-hmm. Like she has grown up on the show uh, alongside you, and like obviously she's not your kid, but do you feel some of that like protective spirit toward her in a way? Yeah, you know, as a, as a as an actor, I mean, we don't get to see her that that much. Like right. I mean, she'll usually work one day a week, and she's got school the rest of the times or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I I want her to like have a, have a good experience. I want her to have fun. And sometimes I think she gets, you know, worried and stressed and about her lines. And she started doing table reads this year for the first time. And she's mm-hmm. doing great at doing that. You know, this was the first year where we're, usually we had uh, one of our writers reading her part. So now she's joining us at the table reads, which is a big step. You know, it's a lot of pressure and she's, she's done a great job. But yeah, I felt myself very protective over that first table read because they accidentally handed her the wrong script. Mm. Uh, they had revised the script and gave her the old one. So as she's following along, she's getting lost, and then we couldn't see it. But I got a text on my phone at the table read from somebody watching the table read saying, 
Aubrey's crying. And I look down and sure enough, she's like in tears. And I like, Jesse sits next to her at the table read. So I nudged him and then he helped her. And then he figured out, he's like, she's got the wrong script. Like, so we had to get her the new script and that I was like, wow, way to, it was just an honest, you know, mistake. Somebody handed her the wrong script, but it's like, you can't set a kid up for that kind of failure (laughs) at her first table read. I mean, that's just way out of bounds. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I was like, you know, Hmm. paternal in that moment. Yeah. A lot of actors, uh, say, you know, don't want to work with kids or find that um, intimidating. And yet you do both this and the toy box, which has a healthy element of children ruining people's dreams, Mm -hmm. uh, which I always enjoy. (laughs) What is it that you like about, about working with kids? Well, it goes back to me, you know, as a kid saying I wanted to be a clown in the circus. Mm -hmm. I just enjoy kids. I always have Uh, messing with them, I guess, just mostly because I've never I've never really talked to kids like they're kids. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that freaks kids out because, you know, I think, uh, you know, I just meet them not at a five-year-old level because I I, I think that's like talking down to a kid. It's like, you know, meet them a little little higher than that. And so I enjoy that banter with kids. And when I find a kid that gets it and like is into it, I just absolutely love it. We had a little guest star this week on the show. Uh, plays Pepper and and Ronaldo's uh, kid, and he was awesome. You know, mm-hmm. he's just really, really cool, and I enjoyed talking to him because I didn't feel like I was talking to an eleven year old kid. Right. But you know, with the toy box, the reason I was excited about that is because I think we're all on a quest to feel young again. It's like when I go to Disneyland, I've had to like really come to grips with the fact that I'm the most happy I am mm. when I'm on Peter Pan or Casey Jr. at Disneyland. Because it makes me feel like an eight-year-old kid, you know? Like, the idea of Christmas Eve when you're six, like, that's a feeling that, unfortunately, the complexities of life uh, have now clouded. So, anything I can get to that gets me close to that feeling, I'm into. And the toy box is one of those things. It's like, wait a minute. So, I can do a show where I can see a bunch of toys, and then I can talk about the toys with a bunch of kids who are as excited about the toys, way more excited about them than I am. But then that makes me excited because I remember that feeling. So, that's why I wanted to to do that was just to to feel like a kid because it feels nice. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It feels good. Selfishly, it just feels good. Yeah. You said that you wanted to be a clown uh, when you were growing up. T- take me back to when you were a kid and how you like developed a love for performing when you realized, hey, I think I should be an actor. Yeah. I was in 4-H. I did this thing called 4-H for people that are in the Midwest. that will know what that is. But uh, I think it's everywhere. I yeah. shouldn't say just the Midwest, but it's not everybody will know what 4-H is. Use your Google button. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably where I first like got a performance bug because there were different things that you could do within 4-H that allowed you to perform, like pantomime. I did like a weird pantomime when I was a kid to Neil Diamond's Coming to to America in a purple wig. And I did a pantomime to Putting on the Ritz. Remember that song? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Blue. Uh, So I think performance kind of like started started there actually being on stage. But I, it's, it's in the FISBO episode of Modern Family from season one. When I learned that clowns were just people with makeup, mm-hmm. I knew that's what I wanted to do. It was It's a clear memory for me. And I think most people that are want to be clowns have that same memory. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait a minute. These people aren't aliens from another planet. They're just, I can do this? Yeah. It's just a red nose and, and makeup. And, and, and so 
I was the kid that raised pigs, played football, and wanted to be a clown, you know, and putting on my mom's makeup. My grandma would make all my costumes for me. And my dad had a friend that was a shrine clown. And he taught me how to put my makeup on when I was a kid. And it just, it's just something I wanted to do. And I think when you talk to people that, you know, the vast number of people I'm sure you'll talk to that wanted to be a clown when they were kids, uh, will tell you the same thing. It's just that um, something resonated. And so I would do birthday parties for kids. My dad named me Fizbo the Clown, you know, when I was like nine. I had cards. I still have my business cards from when I had printed when I was 11. You know, Fizbo the Clown, parties, parties, something in parades. I'm like, I just love that I put parades on there. It's like, so if you're organizing a parade and you need a clown, (laughs) you know who to call. Like there's just parades being thrown all the time. But uh, (laughs) I love those business cards. And then I went to college in didn't really think anything more about performing or anything like that. Just was going to college to study sociology and was going to be a prison administrator because mm-hmm. I wasn't a great student, but I did good in sociology and those kinds of classes. And I hated college. I, I mean, I hated school. I just wasn't a good student. Yeah. I'm, I'm no means any inspiration for kids or people listening that need a pep talk and doing good in school. I get it. I'm, I was bored and I was a, Troublemaker in a nice way because I was scared to death of my dad if I got in too much trouble. But, you know, I was a disruptor. Uh, you know, I just was that kid. And then I went to college because I was told to that I had to. And then I went there. And then I auditioned or I filled out the application for Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Clown College. Yeah. And, um, oh, first I did a play on a dare. And uh, auditioned for a play on a dare. What was the play? Prelude to a Kiss is what I got cast in. But I auditioned for Hamlet. In Prelude to a Kiss, and I learned a Claudius monologue. I'd never read Shakespeare in my life, and my friend Paul, you know, got me a book, and I memorized a Claudius monologue to sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these morning duties to your father, but you must know. Your father lost a father, and that father lost lost his. Whatever it is. That's all I remember. Uh, but I learned that monologue, and I went in, and I did it, and the, I was a fraternity guy, and the theater woman looked at me like I was, you know, from heaven. She's like, who, who are you? What do you, you know, like she made me feel so good. She's like, oh, my God, that was wonderful. Thank mm-hmm. you so much okay, let's do some cold reading. And I said, I'm sorry, do some what? <laughs> she goes, we're going to do some cold reading now with, a, with, with some scenes from Hamlet. And I'm, I, and I, I'm seriously, I said, well, well, what is cold reading? Mm. She's like, oh, we'll just grab, grab a book and we'll just read scenes. And that's when she figured out I was a fraud, <laughs> which is the feeling that most actors have is that at any point, somebody's going to figure out you're not very good. Uh, and that's when she figured out I wasn't very good. I just had learned a monologue and could say that monologue pretty well. Right. And I did not get cast in Hamlet. My friend Paul got cast in Hamlet as Bernardo, who utters the first lines of Hamlet. And then I auditioned for Prelude to a Kiss as well. And I got cast in the Ned Beatty movie role, uh, Uncle Fred. Sure. The smallest part. But I loved it. Mm. And then I auditioned for Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Clown College, and I got rejected twice from there. One time I got very close, uh, but I got rejected. And then by that point I decided I wanted to be an actor, and I moved to Chicago and— yeah, started my career. I one of the when I was in college, I lived with a guy who was juggling all mm-hmm. the time. And one day, I woke up and he wasn't around. And I asked, you know, well, where is he? And they said, well, he's driven down to another town to interview at the circus. He wants to join the circus. What state was this? This was South Dakota. Okay. So, uh, and and he comes back later in the day. He's all dejected, and they're like, they didn't need jugglers, but they did need truck drivers. And he was like, just really hurt by that. Like. 
it's hard to get a job in that field now. Like, like when you were, how long did you sort of pursue the the clown thing before you decided that acting was maybe going to scratch that same buck? Well, once I got rejected the second time from Railing <laughs> Brothers, I was, I was, I was done. But I had decided at that point that I was going to, you know, pursue acting because then, then I had done two more plays. I did um, a play called Tale of the Lost Formicans, Twelfth Night. I finally did do Shakespeare, mm. and then I did a play called All My Sons by Arthur Miller. And it was after I did uh, Arthur Miller and All My Sons, I played Joe Keller, who's, you know, like a 70-year-old man. I was, you know, 21, whatever I am in, when you're a senior in college. And people came up to me in Manhattan, Kansas. I went to Kansas State, and they were like, you were really good. Mm. And I always say, I'm just glad I was kind of dumb enough or naive enough to believe that people in Manhattan, Kansas— knew what yeah. good was. Yeah. And I'm not saying they didn't, but I be- it didn't matter because I believed them. And uh, I decided, well, if people here are telling me I'm good, then I'll see if people when I move to Chicago tell me I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I had no intention of moving to Los Angeles when I was in Chicago. I thought I was moving to Chicago to pursue an acting career. I loved the city. I loved the food. And I thought, well, I'm going to just stay in Chicago and sure. be an actor. Mm-hmm. Do Steppenwolf hopefully one day. Do Second City one day maybe the Goodman, you know, whatever it is, and, and carve out a nice career as an actor there. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. When you were in that early phase, phase of your career doing guest spots, doing commercials and stuff, are there any of those moments that particularly stand out to you as like something you remember fondly or something where you feel like you really learned something about your craft? Well, <laughs> in Chicago, I learned that you don't have to actually run in slow motion when they're shooting you in slow motion. That was like <laughs> one of my most embarrassing moments ever. <laughs> they were like, okay, Eric, we're going we're gonna to get you in slow motion this time. And action. And I just start taking off running, you know, like moving my arms really slow. Right. And a cut. Hey, buddy. So listen, the camera catches you in slow motion. Uh, you <laughs> don't have to run in slow motion. I'm like, oh, right. Got it. Yeah, of course. I knew that. Duh. <laughs> so, but, you know, nobody teaches you that in college at Kansas State. And, um, you know, other little things like when I moved to L.A. and got shot for the first time. Nobody teaches you how to get shot and get squibbed and fall down dead. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things are like really fun to learn on the job and just hope people have patience with you. Um, but yeah, you know, in commercials, it, it, you know, the commercials were really good for me. I, you know, I did a few in, 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 in Chicago. And then when I moved here in 98 is I got, um, I auditioned for a guy named Joe Pitka, who is, um, legendary commercial director and um he's known for hiring a lot of the same people over and over and over again and i and i got in with him and i've told him many times he doesn't like to hear it because he's a curmudgeon but he's responsible for my career in in very very many ways and not in that like he put me on the map but what he did was give me confidence and what he did was give me uh tools to deal with you know things coming at me fast sure and he gave me uh, the ability to walk into a room for a co-star on some TV show and not really care if I got it yeah. because yeah. I had money in the bank and I wasn't worried like financially about like paying my bills because he kept hiring me for IBM commercials and other, you know, different commercials. So, you know, he taught me a lot working with him, mm-hmm. you know, how to manage, manage yourself on a set, how to, you know, be on time. Yeah. Yeah. And know your stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. When you're in a commercial, uh, you almost you sometimes have to create like a believable person with a line yeah. or even less than that. Like what's what's the trick to commercial acting? I'm always interested in that. <laughs> oh man. Well, I haven't done one in a long time. <laughs> you haven't had to. Well, I, I yeah. I I think I, I just I think I did over 100 commercials. Wow. In you know that time span from like 96 to 2007. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's what it was. You know, um, honesty, I mean, we always just come back to the truth of the moment, you know, where I studied at Improv Olympic in the Second City, that, you know, Truth and Comedy is the name of the book that, you know, they taught. And it's the title of that book for a reason. There's truth, you know, where you find the truth is the funny and the funny is in the truth. And so I always just tried to put myself, you know, create a moment before is very important in mm-hmm. commercial acting. It's like it doesn't start like right at your line, it starts the moment before, sure. and you create the moment after, and then hopefully, you, because you don't have enough time to build an arc on camera, mm-hmm. but you do have enough time to build that arc if you create that moment and that moment after. So I would do that. Um, you know, a lot of times in commercial auditions, it would be so funny because they'd be like, okay, that was great. Now do it faster. Yeah. And we do that on Modern Family. Like, that's probably one of the biggest note we get is pace it up. Let's pace it up. And I roll my eyes because I'm like, no, pace it down, pace yeah. it down. But um, you have to learn to act fast, yeah. you know, in commercials. Bite and smiles. I never got a lot of fast food stuff because I was a heavy set guy in fast food places other than Jack in the Box didn't want to associate themselves with that guy. So I never had to do a lot of bite and smiles or drinking uh, like uh, cola products. That's, that's a great story. I, did, I booked a Diet Pepsi commercial, Super Bowl commercial with Joe Pitka. And we showed up to the set to shoot it, and there were three different guys there that had all thought they'd booked the main guy in the commercial. Oh, wow. And we all knew each other because we were all part of the kind of the Pitka players people. Like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm the guy. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm the guy. It's like, well, what are you doing? Well, I thought I was the guy. So we're all there. Yeah. And it t- turns out that the client liked one of us, Joe liked one of us, and and the ad agency liked one of us. And he's like, Hi, bring them all in, and then we'll figure out, like, who it is on the day. Well, Joe wanted me. Because right. I was the youngest and heaviest guy. Then there was a, an, a little older and smaller version of me. And then there was an older dude that wasn't heavy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll never forget him screaming on, on the set. It's like, who do you think drinks your goddamn stuff? Fat people! <laughs> uh, like, yeah, that's uh, that's me. But I didn't. I, I didn't get them. It was the born to be wild spot where they put uh, an actor in with um, Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda on the motorcycles. Sure. And um, it was a Super Bowl commercial, and uh, no, it was an Oscars commercial. Maybe I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. It was a Pepsi, Diet Pepsi spot, and uh, I didn't get the main guy, but I am in the commercial. Joe, that's how cool Joe is, though. He you know he found a place for all all of us, even yeah. though only one of us was going to be the guy. Yeah. But. Um, Boy, commercials. I I I have dreams and nightmares about those those days mm. and thinking, you know, because all my friends are still doing them and just the uh, just the lack of uh couth it comes you know, and disrespect that, you know, yeah, how people how people are with actors just saying things just right to your face. And right. Joe was a different deal. He could say anything to me and I wouldn't care. But just just uh, the conversations people would have in front of you about you, yeah. you know, things like that. It's it's crazy. When you thought about approaching roles and getting roles as someone who's not, let's say, a conventional leading man, uh, what like what were you looking for? What do, when did you know this is a part I can go out for uh, in a TV show, in a movie, something like that? I was really, you know, 
when I talk to actors and they ask me for advice and things like that, I, I always start with your expectations. Like that's the first place to start. It's like, okay, well you need to come, I need to know what your expectations are. And then we can talk about what's real and possible. Because when I moved out here from Chicago, I'll very, very vivid memory of somebody saying, Oh, you're going to be the next, uh, lifeguard on Baywatch. Mm, mm. And, uh, I said, well, no, but I might be an ambulance driver that, yeah. you know, pick somebody up on the beach at, on Baywatch. And so I remember having realistic expectations from the very beginning of my career. Cause had I moved out here to be the next lifeguard on Baywatch, like I would have been very disappointed, like very unhappy. And so many of us as actors, we tether ourselves to ideas that aren't possible. I mean, this is a business that discriminates. It's a business that it, it's a tried and true process of who gets jobs is based on personal taste. It's like, I want that person to have that job because I like the color of his hair. Right. I like that person because he's too short. He's short and that's funny. Right. Like it's just the way our business works for everyone mm-hmm. across the board. So I knew that going in and I knew that, you know, that was what I was choosing for myself. Um, and I was painted every color in the spectrum in commercials. You know, that's back in the day when big guys painted were all the rage. I was mm-hmm. blue and red. I was silver for Coors Light. I was green for something. You know, I, I, every color you can imagine, I painted myself on TV and poured some product. And in commercials, it was different. You know, I was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. In TV, I never allowed myself to be, uh, I never wanted to be like the, the, my size to sort of be the butt of the joke or my bigness, whatever. And for a long time, I could look at my resume and and my reel and say, I didn't get any of those jobs because of me being a heavy set guy. Like my first role on TV was on a show called Dharma and Greg. And it's just a couple lines, but it's not like it said fat guy answers the door. Right. You know, it was just guy answers the door. ER was a big moment for me. Um, to be on that show. That was the first show I ever said I ever walked on and was like, oh my God, I am on the set of Jerry stands right there. Oh my God. You know, like I was freaking out, you yeah. know, on Warner brothers. And I didn't get that part. It didn't say fat guy cuts his ears to look like Dr. Spock. It was right. just a guy CSI West wing, those shows. So I was really proud, proud of that. And I still will, you know, just in, an episode of Modern Family we just shot, I, you know, you asked me earlier about, do I take exception to things? And I did. I was like, if this is, if this story is because Cam's a big guy and that's why we think this is funny, I'm opposed to it. Like, because we're better than that. Like, it's not okay just to like make this joke because it'd be funny to make Cam do this. Like, I want to know the story behind it. I want to know where it came from. Yeah. And, um, and I've always said that, you know, we did an episode where in season four, I think I'd, you know, me, Eric Stone Street, lost a few pounds, and we did a couple episodes where I was throwing out my 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 fat jeans. And I said, we're not saying the word fat that many times. It's like, we can say it like a couple times, but that's not what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about that. Like, we can come up with better creative ways. And I've always been sensitive to whenever I read something, because uh, I still think making fun of fat people is like the, the last bastion of what's acceptable in our world. It's like... You know, I still, being me on TV, will have people, like, in parking lots if, you know, because people are surprised that I still have average run-ins with people just like everybody else does. It's like, dude, you're parked so close to my car, I can't even get into my car. Well, shut your fat fucking face. I mean, go to it just like that, just in a second. Mm -hmm. In a second. 
It's like, and you know, and I always in improv, you know, cause I did improv for most of my career coming up and I would every once in a while run into an improviser that would bring my size up on stage in an improv and it never went over well. And I would have to explain to him, it's like, here's the deal. When we walk onto stage, people are predetermined to like me more than you mm. because of John Belushi, because of John Candy, because of Chris Farley, because of all Jonathan Winters, all the people that they associate that have made them laugh over the years. Yeah. Second City, there's always a big guy on the stage mm. for a reason, mm-hmm. because we're, we're, we're more likable than you are. Mm. And you can choose to go out there and embrace that, or you can go out there and make fun of me and turn the audience against you. Your choice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always just tried to like make how I looked secondary. And my assistant that used to work for me, Tim, he's a he's an actor, and and he you know worked for me with five years, and and he was auditioning over the time. And I told him you're gonna at some point you're gonna have to figure out what your line is, right? Like what your personal line is in an audition. When they say pop off your shirt, and and if the commercial is about that you're fat, if you're okay with that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, draw the line now and never go back beyond it and let somebody else cash those checks and you, you know, keep your, your pride and your, in your self-worth. Mm-hmm. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined and less time consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. It's no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, F-R-E-E, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you are going out and trying to get these smaller parts and doing commercials and stuff, how did you, this is a question every actor has, how do you protect your ego? Because there's inevitably rejection, but also when you're a character actor, you know, sometimes there's rejection based on your appearance, things like that. Yeah. Well, not taking anything personal. I mean, it really, because it's the most impersonal business there is. Like I said, people will say the most horrendous things about you in front of you, about you. Like, and it's not, it's not personal. Because a lot of times they don't even know your name or anything like that. I mean, it, there's a lot of tremendously great people in this business. Sure. And I get to work with a lot of them, and there are a, a tremendous amount of awful people in this business, as we all know. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's unique to any business. I just think that it's just known, you know, in our business, there are bad, you know, not very nice people. And you you learn to identify those people from the beginning and kind of Stay stay away from them and and remove yourself from that situation, and that's how you protect your ego. You know, coming up with your with your own personal standards of things. And um, for me, it was 
you know, choosing when I was willing to exploit myself based on the way I look and making it my choice. Right. You know, um, I was doing a thing on Oxygen Network when the network first started and they had asked me to come out in spandex shorts eating a donut. And I said, you know, when it rains, I don't wear a raincoat and carry an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we get the joke. Yeah. Like you literally need me with a donut in my mouth to tell the story that I'm a big guy. Mm. Like, no thanks. Mm. So it's just like moments like that where I kind of would protect myself a little bit just for my own self. Uh, and with auditioning, it's just like, I looked at auditioning and I, th- I don't think I'd invented this by any means. I'm sure actors that have come in and talked to you before have said the same thing. I looked at audition auditioning like I was going into a room where there was a problem. Right. And I was there to fix it. And if I got the job, great. And if I didn't, as far as I was concerned, they still had the problem and their, you know, their <laughs> pipe was leaking or whatever. Uh, that's how I looked at auditioning. Uh, and it took me a while to get that way. Yeah. You know, it took me a while to get my parents to get around their head around that because they think you should get every job I auditioned for. Yeah. It's like, well, whatever happened to that McDonald's commercial? It's like, well, I didn't get it. It's like, well, whatever happened to this? I, I didn't get it. <laughs> and so I had to figure out a way to manage my mind in those those ways that I'm not going to get most parts. I'm not unique in that way. Most people don't get most parts. All I can do is be prepared and do the best job I can when I get the opportunity and celebrate those moments. Uh, Not too big. I really learned to be a more mellow person because of this business. I, uh, I don't get that excited about anything anymore, which kind of sucks. Yeah. And I just realized if I get too excited about anything, then I have to get too sad about something. Yeah. If I get too sad about something, then I, so I just I just kind of became more even keeled with with the business and just like eh whatever, and with Modern Family that's what it was. I was that first time they said no thanks I was like okay, but the second time I went out and bought clothes and now I was pissed because I was like <laughs> okay well now I've in, now I've spent money for you guys yeah. so now I'm more invested yeah and then they said no again and I was mad, mm. but um, you know pr- protect your ego, understanding that you know. Everybody's scared in our business too. Yeah. Everybody wants to do a good job for somebody else. Yeah. The biggest thing that probably helped my career was uh, being an uh, almost famous Cameron Cameron Crowe's movie. Having Cameron Crowe hire me Mm -hmm. uh, because he's such a respected filmmaker. Yeah. Such good taste. Mm -hmm. That helped me in so many ways. Not because it was such a great big giant part, but because casting directors could look down at my resume and see. Cameron Crowe hired him. Hmm. And then they could say to the producers, well, you know, Cam- you know, he was an almost famous. Yeah. And that means something to those people. It's like, well, if Cameron Crowe hired him, he must be pretty good. When, you know, I may not be. Who knows? Yeah. But Cameron Crowe thought I was, so I must be all right. And that's kind of the point of our, I think that's sort of how our business works, is everybody wants to be told by somebody else that they have permission to do what they're going to do. We're uh, we're coming up on Halloween, so I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask you about your your one episode role on uh, American Horror Story. Yeah, as man, I can't remember the name of the character. He's man who's scared of pig demons. Chester, I think, was his name, <laughs> or Ch- I can't remember his name, but yeah. Uh, you had done Nip Tuck before, so you kind of knew what a, what a Ryan Murphy show was like. But that was such a crazy season of television. Tell me just just a little bit about that experience, about being in that show and also being scared of a man with a pig head. Yeah, boy, it was, because I, I raised pigs as a kid. Sure. I was very familiar with pigs. That was cool. You know, a little piece of cool trivia. Uh, Ryan Murphy, I did Nip Tuck, and uh, production of Nip Tuck uh, 
and production of the Modern Family pilot got together and worked it out so I could do both things. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So I was shooting the and that episode of Nip Tuck while Modern Family, the pilot, was being shot. So that that was cool. So mm-hmm. I had a little relationship with Ryan. And then, of course, Glee got on the same year uh, Modern Family got on. So we stayed, you know— cordial. I would see him and say hi. And then when that came uh, along, they asked me to do it. And I was like, you know, I I think his brain is awesome. I I think Ryan comes up with cool ass stuff and American horror. I I just love the idea. And I, I basically said yes to it. And, and they, they've, they've asked me to come back a couple other times, but, um, to do something, not that same character because that character gets killed, but timing the uh, modern family schedule, you know, we have to, we're in first position to that. So if, if I have to ask time off for another TV show, they don't really love that. So I couldn't do it. Um, but I would love to do another episode of that. I, I love that world. I love playing that part. And Dylan McDermott, I've been a fan of his for a long time from the practice. And, you know, I still have those moments where I'm like, cool, I get to work with Dylan McDermott. This is so awesome. I'm so, hey, Dylan, do you remember that episode of the practice? Like, I still have my fan, fan geek moments. So that was fun. And that set was incredible. Uh, to walk onto that soundstage at Paramount was awesome. Um Fun, yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. So you you do host this uh, show, the Toy Box. What is it that we do not know about being a reality show host? Like, what's what's the secret story behind that? I am like I, just watching it. I imagine there's a lot of downtime. If that makes sense, there is not a tremendous amount of downtime oh, wow. okay. on that one because we shoot it uh, we shoot it pretty quickly because of the kids uh, and the timing of my day job again, Modern Family. So, um, I come in. I don't. There's no script. You know, I'm making, I'm just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took it, like I said, because I, I like toys and I like kids. And I thought, you know, getting to look at the world through a bunch of, you know, kids' eyes for a certain amount of time would be fun. Um, and I like the idea of meeting, you know, passionate people right. that are dedicated to their doll mm-hmm. that they've been working on for nine years and have spent $400,000 on. Like, I'm interested in that person. Yeah. That's the Charles Kuralt in me. I'd like to do a show where I go on the road and meet people across America <laughs> uh, and talk and interview pie makers in Iowa. Um, so that was, I thought, my opportunity to kind of get to know, you know, people. Yeah. And this year I'm an executive producer <laughs> of the show. Yeah. And that, now I'm finding like... uh watching the edits and watching the cuts, I'm realizing, like, um, I was, you know, because I'm improvising with kids and I'm improvising with people that are nervous to be there. Right. And so there's a lot of awkward moments. And I'm a fan of the awkward. Mm -hmm. I think life lives in the awkward. And I love that when they do that with me with Cam. I want to live in those moments. I can out-awkward most people. And so I'm watching the edits and, you know, I think the, the answer to your question is that there's, you know, a tremendous amount more that we shoot that no one ever sees that I sure. wish we could see, but we have 44 minutes. Yeah. 42 minutes. Yeah. So we end every episode asking some of the same questions. Yeah. Uh, we have a special one for the Halloween season, which I'm going to lead off with, which is what's your like greatest Halloween costume moment? What's your, what was your, what was the pinnacle of your costuming? If, if you did indeed wear ha- Halloween costumes. I'm big into scaring people. Okay. And I was Michael Myers before it was cool to be Michael Myers. Like in 4-H again, that's where the performance stuff started. I was so committed to scaring people by being who I consider the scariest movie character of all For time. sure, yeah. Because he does so little. And I, I, I can stand still 
like you have never seen. And mm. in college, I had the best Michael Myers mask. It was the William Shatner original that I had painted white and I had made look exactly like it. And I would stand outside of my fraternity window while some of our guys' boyfriends or girlfriends were studying and I would just wait. <laughs> I was so committed to that. So I love scaring uh, scaring people. I still enjoy Halloween, giving out candy and uh, – Doing that, but I love the the scary side of Halloween, not the. Yeah, I embrace it. I don't like the clowns bullshit though, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. Who's the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? Oh, that I've never met. I've gotten to meet so many awesome people that I loved. I used to would be able to say it was Kathy Bates, but I got to remember her. Kathy Bates is way, 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 way up my list of people I admire, respect, and think is incredible. Um, John Goodman, just got to meet him for the first time, who I've never met. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm, what I'm kind of humbly bragging here that I've met a lot of really great people. I, I'm not friends with them or anything, but I've just gotten to, I make a point to meet people and say hello and thank them. Like yeah. when I got to, when I was in the same room in the same space with John Goodman, mm-hmm. I wasn't letting that moment go. Yeah. I would say my answer is John Candy. What uh, What do you like about him? His, his, uh, likableness. I wish I had, I'm, I get to play a really likable character, but uh, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is to me the greatest. And then another one of his movies called Only the Lonely. Yeah. Uh, he just was so likable and lovable and seemingly nice. And when Catherine O'Hara has done our uh, our show, I've asked her just want to tell me any John Candy stories? Yeah. She's like, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, told me about different things. And, it, you know, I just wish I could have met him. I wish I could have worked. Oh, well, I met him though. Dennis Franz. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He's great. I, I, my biggest career, and I told him this, I got to tell him this in person. Somebody arranged for me to meet him because they knew how much I loved him. Mm. I told him, I said, Dennis, my biggest career regret is never getting thrown up against a wall by you <laughs> and being called a turd. <laughs> Get over there, you turd. I loved how much he used to say turd on NYPD Blue. Um, well, I love John Candy, though. Yeah, yeah. And finally, what is your favorite TV show that you are not a part of? Not even on the air right now, just all time. NY is way up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday Night Lights is way, I mean, you talk about my world. Yeah. A show about life through the eyes of football. I yeah. mean, oh, that I wanted to be on that show so bad. Anything Peter Berg does, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a fan of. Um, they shoot a lot. like They shot a lot like Modern Family, too. They they didn't, you know, yeah. just loose, go, yeah. mm-hmm. rake and pan, rake and pan. Um, the Americans, current currently, big fan of. And now I, you know— Ozark is amazing. You know, mm-hmm. those, those, that, that show, there's so many new things coming out now. Um, you know, I auditioned for The Office and I was tested for it and I was very bummed for a very long time I wasn't part of that show because I was such a fan of the BBC and I was such a fan of the American version. It took me a while to yeah. get over not being a part of that and then I got Modern Family and I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'll, it's fine. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll move on now. Um, I'm good. But that was a show that I was very... Uh, Parks and Rec. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I love those. I love that show. Mm-hmm. What was the part you read for on The Office? If you uh, well, I originally read for 
Steve, the Steve part, but that wasn't right for me. Then they brought me back in for Kevin. Okay. And I read for Kevin, and then they just tested it off, tested it off tape, and and um, Brian got Brian, who I know now, got that, and he's perfect for it. Sure. I mean, every, it all works out. Yeah. Th- th- that's what for me. I can say it all. It all works out. Everybody, you know, is where usually they're supposed to be, and yeah. Anybody listening, just. You just got to, you know, stick stick to it. If you believe in your talent, you believe in your ability, you have to stick to it. And you have to have skin as thick of a, thick as an elephant. Hmm. Unwavering belief in your ability. Yeah, great. Well, that's a great place to end it, Eric. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Modern Family is on Wednesdays on ABC and also probably, if you're, whenever you're listening to this, it's probably in reruns somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> and the Toy Box is also uh, Fridays on ABC, I think. It's going to be uh, Sunday nights this Sunday year. Sunday nights we on got ABC. the America's the Funniest Home Videos okay, spot great. this year. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank in. you, man. Awesome. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vandewerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. It's time to do closing credits. Uh, just imagine that there's like a wonderful swell of like orchestral music as I read these and like they're in very small type and you're squinting to read them. Box Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to B3 Post. The studio this week was the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. So if you would rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast on your site or app of choice, that would be wonderful. It really helps us climb the charts. It really helps us continue to get great guests, and it really helps us you know, get the word out about what this show is and what we're trying to do. And, and we're really glad that you folks seem to be responding to it so much. You can always tweet at me, TVOTI, if you want to tell me what you think, or you can email me, Todd at Vox.com, and uh, give guest suggestions, give helpful hints, or just leave it in your reviews. I read all of them. Anyway, we'll be back next week with somebody from the world of arts and entertainment or media and culture, somebody who I think is interesting. Until then, watch out for pig demons. They're everywhere. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to I Think You're Interesting. And I want to take this moment to insert a shameless, well, very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company. It's known for its standard technology and its high fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox. It's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. For a lot of Vox readers, that's politics. For some of you, thank goodness, it's pop culture. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether that's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next. And I also love Eater. I go there all the time to figure out where I'm going to eat next. It's it's a great resource for anybody who's into going out to eat as, as much as I am. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and because we believe in the best of our audiences. If you aren't going deep, where are you going?